on this episode of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. It, it gets to reaches a point in December where Mo Dalitz is about ready to send the sheriff in to physically evict Howard Hughes from the DI. And uh, Bob Mayhew, uh, that's the right-hand man of Hughes, he makes a call, the pivotal call to try to avoid this conflict. He calls Jimmy Hoffa and asks him to intercede and to talk down Mo Dalitz from kicking Hughes out. In Spanish, its name means the Meadows. You might know it as the entertainment capital of the world, lost wages, or simply Sin City. Of course, I'm talking about fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. On average, 42 million people visit Las Vegas every year, and I'm one of them. I love this city. The sights, the sounds, the shows, the people, the history. I want to share all of it with you. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is the Jeff Does Vegas Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 62 of the Jeff Does Vegas Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me on another podcast trip to my favorite city in the world, fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. Before we get into this episode of the podcast, I want to thank my guests from the last episode of the show, Mackenzie Fly and Colin Cahill. Mackenzie and Colin are married Vegas entertainers who suddenly found themselves without a gig in the midst of the coronavirus shutdown. Looking for a way to keep performing in spite of the situation, they launched their own comedy music duo, Mac and the Cheese, and have been posting videos on their YouTube channel. We chatted about their life pre-shutdown, what they thought post-pandemic Vegas shows might look like, and the future of Mac and the Cheese. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the episode yet, jump into the archives wherever you get your podcasts and search out episode number 61, my special guests, Mackenzie Fly and Colin Cahill. Or head to the website at jeffdoesvegas.com. All right, here we go. On to the show. Although the city of Las Vegas has really only been around for a little over 100 years, its history is filled with some incredibly colorful characters. And this time around, I want to share the story of one of those people with you. Howard Hughes was a billionaire businessman, movie producer, aviator, and philanthropist. He was also a bit eccentric, to say the least. The stories about Howard Hughes are legendary. Everything from him urinating in mason jars and having foot-long fingernails to locking himself in a movie studio screening room for months on end and buying a Las Vegas hotel because he simply didn't want to leave. The stories have been around for so long and spun in so many different directions that sometimes it's hard to separate fact from fiction. And that is where my guest for this episode of the podcast comes into play. Jeff Schumacher is the vice president of exhibits and programs for the Mob Museum in downtown Las Vegas. Last time Jeff joined us, all the way back in episode number 22, he was here to talk about Las Vegas's mob history. Another one of Jeff's fields of expertise is the subject of Howard Hughes and his time spent in Las Vegas. When did Hughes start spiraling into a world of germophobia and OCD? What prompted him to make the move to Las Vegas in the first place? Did he really buy the Silver Slipper Hotel and Casino because the sign annoyed him? And what was the reasoning behind Hughes' purchase of a Las Vegas TV station? 
We get the answers to these questions and many, many more. Please enjoy my conversation with Jeff Schumacher. Howard Hughes is, uh, you know, a subject that I have been focused on since the late 90s. And uh, there's so many stories, I'm not sure where to begin. Well, let's start with um, his pre-Vegas years. I mean, a lot of people know Howard Hughes as this eccentric billionaire inventor, a little bit crazy, got some weird stories and some weird legends surrounding him. One of the big things that he was involved with before he got to Las Vegas was the world of filmmaking. What piqued his interest in filmmaking? Why did he decide he wanted to to get into movies? Well, I think the the original um, impetus for his interest in movies was his uncle, Rupert. Uh, Rupert Hughes was a very well-known screenwriter and director uh, during the silent film era. And he lived in Hollywood. And uh, Howard would come as a youth uh, with his father and mother, and they would visit uh, Uncle Rupert. And Rupert, at that time, you know, people have not heard of Rupert Hughes today, but at the time, he was very well known. He was front page news in any kind of celebrity sense. And so, uh, you know, visiting him, going to movie sets, I think definitely uh, created uh, an interest uh, in the subject for, and the idea of like doing something new and different. Uh, in the in Hollywood, I think that that really was in Howard's mind very early on. So it wasn't just for the starlets then. <laughs> <laughs> that came later. <laughs> and and I mean, he did all right with movies, right? I mean, it wasn't like he made millions of dollars off of them or smash box office records uh, at the time. But um, Hell's Angels was kind of his his really big success, correct? It was, you know, he started in the silent film era and he uh, created a company called Caddo Productions and he made um, several movies. And at the time he was more of a producer. Um, when it came to the movie Hell's Angels, which is the World War I uh, flying epic, uh, you know, he decided that he would be, he would direct. And there are pros and cons to that. On the pro side, he... Uh, uh, was the director of some of the still most amazing uh, combat flying scenes that have ever been filmed. And so if you go back and watch Hell's Angels, you will see uh, those scenes are, are riveting. And I think they made a big impact uh, on the movie industry. Now, the downside as a director was that he was terrible with, with people <laughs> and with actors and with dialogue. And, you know, you do not really want to watch Hell's Angels for the plot development. <laughs> you know, it's really all about about those uh, those flying scenes. Now, for for Howard Hughes, what came first for him? Was it the the interest in movies or the interest in aviation or did the, the two kind of kind of come together? Because, of course, I think a lot of people know Howard Hughes as uh, particularly after the the Leonardo DiCaprio movie, as the aviator and and his involvement in in aviation and and aircraft development and things like that. I think going back to when he was a, a young boy, um, Howard was was always interested in sort of engineering, uh, taking devices apart and putting them back together. That kind of a kid uh, to see how they worked. 
Um, but movies came first. I think he wanted to make movies uh, first and foremost as a young adult. And then uh, he, when he decided to make Hell's Angels, uh, he that really um, cemented his his desire to get involved with aviation. And uh, from he really almost after like two years after the release of Hell's Angels in 1931, he he came up with a couple more movies, and then he gave up on the movie industry for a while because he wanted to dedicate all his time to aviation and he wanted to, he wanted to design planes. Uh, he wanted to fly them faster than they'd ever been flown before. And, and he succeeded in that area in the, in the mid to late thirties, Howard Hughes was the, the most accomplished aviator in the country. Uh, 1936, he, he flew at, uh, he, he set the air speed record. And that same year he flew across the United States in record time. Um, two years later, in 1938, he flew around the world in record time. And so what was interesting about Hughes, and I think why people remember him so fondly as an aviator, is not only was he involved in the development of these airplanes, uh, but he flew them himself. You know, he was the test pilot, and he insisted upon that. So, you know, when they flew around the world, you know, he was the pilot much of the time. He had a crew. But, you know, he was the main guy making all the decisions and and uh, flying for, you know, hour after hour after hour um, as they set the record for, uh, you know, uh, they blew away the record, really. I think they, they blew away the record by a couple of days. And him as a test pilot, that didn't always work out all that well for him, did it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he, he was a reckless flyer. He was a very good pilot. Everybody sort of agrees on he had the sort of natural talent and desire to fly planes. And uh, he flew everything from a little tiny little plane up to obviously the biggest plane in the world. We'll get to that. But he, he was a little reckless. And, and but part of that was he was flying experimental aircraft. So something that was, you know, right, it was coming right out of just being built right there. And, and he was the test pilot. So he was putting himself inherently in danger flying a plane that never been flown before, you know? So, so there were accidents in 1943. Uh, he had a, a pretty serious accident at Lake Mead, uh, South of Las Vegas in which he landed his plane on the water, uh, and crashed and one of his, uh, wingtips hit the water and then the plane started turning and end up two men ended up dying from that accident. And then three years later, uh, he was involved in a, a very serious accident in uh, Los Angeles where his plane crashed uh, into the Los Angeles Country Club. And in that case, Hughes was, a, was by himself in the plane. And he, when he hit the ground, the plane was in flames and Hughes was badly hurt. He's, he climbed out of the cockpit somehow on his own. And then uh, a young Marine who happened to hear the crash and was nearby ran up and, and pulled him away from the wreckage uh, before he got, you know, before he burned to death, he ended up going to the hospital. Uh, and uh, there were doctors that evening who were telling the press, we don't think he's going to make it. That's how serious the injuries were. And that's the crash. I think that people are probably most familiar with, because again, coming back to the, the movie, the aviator, that crash, I think, was was portrayed in that film, wasn't it? Absolutely was. And uh, I think it was a, a major turning point in his life as well. Um, Hughes was, you know, he had broken bones. He had third-degree burns. 
He had internal bleeding. Um, he was in very bad shape. And the interesting thing about that, he was in the hospital for about six weeks. And then he walked out out of his own power after about six weeks. Wow. He really, with all the injuries that he had, he should have stayed in the hospital probably six months, honestly. <laughs> but he was Howard Hughes and he was stubborn and he walked out. What he brought with him, though, were painkillers, uh, morphine, codeine. And, and other uh, pills that counteracted the ill effects of those. So he ended up becoming, you know, it wasn't long after that he became addicted to uh, painkillers. And this affected the rest of his life. Um, just sticking with uh, with aviation for a hot minute here, because I am a, a raging uh, aviation nerd. <laughs> I want to talk about just briefly the Spruce Goose. Yes. I had a chance to see that aircraft uh, uh, several years ago at uh, the Evergreen Aviation Museum in McMinnville in Oregon. And I don't think people realize quite how big of an aircraft that that is and how big of a feat that was at the time. When was the that that aircraft designed and built? So I, I too, by the way, have visited the Evergreen Museum and seen uh the Spruce Goose, and it is it is a sight to see. Uh, I, I am still amazed by it uh, to this day. Um, what happened is during uh, World War II, uh, Howard Hughes wanted to be involved with the uh, the war effort, and you know, obviously making uh, you know designing and making airplanes uh, made a lot of sense for him. And he um, came up with the idea along with uh, a few other people to create an, a transport plane that could transport troops all across the Atlantic Ocean without um, the risk that, like, U-boats, you know, were going to shoot them down. A lot of things that were – what was happening was German U-boats were, sh- were, were sinking uh, uh, American and other ships in the Atlantic because they were really defenseless. And uh, so if we flew the troops over, you know, it would, it would be safer. So the idea was to build a really, really big airplane and we could fly troops across the ocean. So Hughes got the contract uh, along with uh, Henry Kaiser, and they started developing what uh, Hughes called the H-4 or the Hercules airplane. And one of the problems was that this was not the highest priority for the, uh, for the Defense Department at the time. And so they insisted that he build this plane out of wood rather than out of metal because metal needed to go toward other things. And so Hughes uh, and his crew came up with uh, this uh, Duramold type of wood that would, that would create this plane. And it was a super strong, super, uh, um, uh, you know, it was very heavy, but it was, it was still a, uh, a good, a good material for the plane. And the thing is build, developing the H4, the Hercules took a much longer than uh, than he was hoped, and that the Defense Department hoped, and so uh, it wasn't done uh, by the end of the war. So after the war, you know, is over, and people are starting to analyze where all the money was spent. There were some senators in Washington who were um, of the opinion that this was a boondoggle, that the Hercules was a waste of taxpayer money, and Hughes was summoned to to uh, Washington to defend himself in front of a Senate committee. Well, history goes, will uh, record that Hughes uh, uh, won the day decidedly in those Senate hearings and that he made a very good case for himself, for his patriotism, and for the legitimacy of his airplane. And one of the things that he said was, 
if I don't fly this airplane, if this airplane doesn't fly, then he vowed he would leave the country and never come back. And so this is a pretty bold statement. Uh Um, But Hughes went back to LA, Long Beach in this case, and uh, he kept working on the airplane uh, to the point where it was ready for a little test run in 1947. And at the time, he had invited the press out and other people out to uh, to witness this. And the, what had been advertised as just kind of, you know, moving around in the water of Long Beach Harbor and kind of showing off the airplane moving through the water, Hughes, in fact, intended to fly this airplane um, <laughs> in front of everyone. So he, he ramps it up. Uh, it's going faster and faster. And he gets it up to 90 miles an hour. And the plane lifts off. It takes off into the air. Um, and it was in the air for about a minute. Uh, there's video, you know, recording of this and, uh, and still pictures of it proving that Hughes flew this airplane. Um, uh, it was, it was an amazing accomplishment considering how big it was. And, and also the fact that he was using his own money to finish it, you know, millions of dollars he spent of his own money just to prove that this thing would fly. And, and as I say, I don't know if people, um, can quite appreciate how big of an aircraft this is, uh, unless you, you compare it maybe to, to modern aircraft. So, uh, having seen this thing and seeing the, the comparison size charts that were put together, I mean, this thing is, is about the same size as a Boeing 747, um, an Airbus A380, uh, the big, uh, the big Russian Antonov air transports and and keeping in mind that those aircraft are all jet powered this thing was propeller powered you know i think even to this day uh there's these comparisons are made with some of the biggest planes that have been made lately and and the the spruce goose is right there with them you know it uh it's it's still there's nothing that's just dramatically bigger than it unbelievable unbelievable so we talked a little bit about um his his airplane crashes and how that kind of led to his his painkiller addiction and this was kind of the beginnings of as as you mentioned some of the other mental health issues that Howard Hughes had uh, he was known to to be extremely obsessive compulsive and uh, germophobia that was a big thing for him too wasn't it it was and I think that I think the germophobia uh, really and the obsessive compulsive disorder really became evident when he was a kid. And, and one of the things, of course, is his mother uh, was kind of a germaphobe as well. And she, uh, she really passed that on to her son. I think it might have had uh, a not unrelated to the Spanish flu, uh, you know, uh, and the other concerns at that time with different kinds of, you know, uh, things that people were dealing with. And, um, and, and he was always then was concerned about germs. And this, I think, after the accident in 46, after he became more, uh, you know, dependent on drugs, uh, it really exacerbated the obsessive compulsive disorder tendencies as well as the germophobia. And those are just a couple of reasons why he became very reclusive starting in the late 50s. And one of the, the, the incidents that everybody kind of talks about with him in his, uh, that reclusiveness was when he, he locked himself away in a, in a screening room for how many months was that, that he locked himself away? And that was in California, right? Yeah. He had, um, he was had access to, um, studios, uh, 
you know, he was in the movie business and people knew him and they were willing to let him, you know, have access to these movie screening rooms. And he was at Goldwyn studio, I believe in LA. And, um, he, he was there for weeks at a time and it was really him and it was, uh, the projectionist. And then he was, would show movie, would watch movies. And, uh, it's a very strange thing to, to think about, you know, hour after hour after hour in one place. But at the time, I think people have looked back and said, you know, Hughes was having a mental breakdown mm-hmm. and he was such a difficult patient as a, you know, as we may come back to that, you know, he didn't really depend on doctors for a whole lot of, uh, treatment. And he, at that time he probably should have been treated more properly but instead, he sort of came up with his own idea, which is I'm just going <laughs> to watch movies for eight weeks. Uh, <laughs> it was, you know, it was very unusual. But uh, by that time, Hughes had had more than one breakdown, and yeah, um, uh, it was sort of just a, a whole roller coaster of his life, where he would he'd be up and 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 doing big things and and uh, you know changing the world in many ways. And then there would be weeks and months would go by where he was in seclusion and, and nobody saw him. I, I mean, I guess in a way he was kind of the uh, the inventor and the innovator of binge watching, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've, it's it's true. I've talked, I've thought about that as you know, more recently with all of the time we've been spending at home. And uh, you know, it's true. He he had uh, someone who he didn't have obviously Netflix or anything like that. But what he did have was a projectionist on, on staff and access to all the movies he could want. And so he would just order up a movie and they would play it. <laughs> he, it, it sounded crazy at the time, but in the world that we're in right now, it really doesn't seem all that far-fetched, does it? <laughs> not, not really, not really. And, and, you know, he would watch movies over and over again. He too, he, he became obsessed with certain movies and, and, you know, some of them, which he made, some of which were involved actors whom he knew, or directors that he knew. And, uh, you know, and he really liked, you know, kind of war movies and, and movies that involve flying, of course. And uh, so, you know, that must have been annoying for projectionists when he would keep asking for the same movie <laughs> over and over. <laughs> um, let's, let's move on to Howard Hughes and his association with Las Vegas. Before he arrived in Las Vegas and stayed there for the long term, um, he had been to Las Vegas prior to that, correct? Yes. You know, the earliest uh, hard evidence I have of Howard Hughes's visiting Las Vegas is 1941. I think he was definitely uh, in Las Vegas before 1941, but definitely in 41, he landed at a local airport. And uh, well, I have a great story in, in my book about that. Um, and then he had the crash in 1943 at Lake Mead. And he was spending a lot of time in Vegas then. We also know he spent a lot of time in Las Vegas in the late 40s and early 50s. He's, he actually lived in Las Vegas for about a year in 1953 and 1954. He went so far as to acquire a house here, although the best evidence is that he never actually slept in the house. He would go over there occasionally uh, to do work, but he, he slept in a suite at the Flamingo Hotel. So really, <laughs> yeah. So fast forward to uh, 1966. In 1965, Hughes had sold all his shares in Transworld Airlines (TWA), and the amount of his shares, the value of his shares, was 546 million dollars, which 
is a lot of money today, but imagine how much money that was in 1965. Wow. And he, uh, it was a large, it was, it was described at the time as the largest single check that had ever been written to an individual. But of course, when you have $546 million, all of a sudden, who wants a big chunk of that? The, uh, the Internal Revenue Service. <laughs> so Hughes was looking for a, a way to avoid that huge penalty, that huge tax penalty. And he came up with the idea that he would move to Las Vegas, he moved to Nevada, and then he would invest that, a lot of that money into land and, and other uh, properties. That's a way to avoid, to avoid just giving it to the government. So Hughes, in, on uh, Thanksgiving of 1966, he came to Las Vegas by train, believe it or not. Uh, you know, the, the great aviator insisted on coming to Las Vegas on a train. And uh, he came in the middle of the night, and the train stopped a little ways outside of Las Vegas, where a van was waiting. And Hughes was transferred from the train to the van, and then he was driven. This is all in secret. People didn't know he was coming. And Hughes arrived at the Desert Inn Hotel on the burgeoning Las Vegas Strip and moved up into the ninth floor, which was the, the penthouse floor of the Desert Inn. And he's, he, he was in one room, and uh, his aides, his personal aides, were, uh, took up the rest, of the rest of the ninth floor. And some of the stories surrounding Howard Hughes are legendary enough, but the ones specifically involving Las Vegas are, are just crazy. Um, one of the more prevalent ones, I guess you could say, is, is the story of him taking over the Desert Inn them wanting him to leave and him basically saying, uh, no. <laughs> well, that's right. You know, he, so he moves into the, uh, the, the penthouse suite, uh, of the desert and he takes up the entire penthouse floor. You know, the hotels in Las Vegas are a lot bigger now than they were then. Uh, so nine stories was, you know, as big as you were going to get, but you know, those rooms were valuable. They were very valuable to the desert Inn because that's where their high rollers would stay when they came to gamble. But Hughes was not a high roller, and uh, Hughes didn't gamble at all. He never left the room. Uh, and his aides were, uh, they were, they weren't gambling much either. They were guys who were very loyal to Hughes, and they were very focused on their jobs. They weren't spending a lot of money in the hotel, the casino. And so Mo, Mo Dalitz, the, uh, the mob boss who ran the Desert Inn, he wanted Hughes out. He never intended that Hughes was going to live there. And so as the end of December is approaching, so remember he came to Las Vegas in, on Thanksgiving of 66, late November. By mid-December, Mo Dalitz is concerned that these high rollers are, who are going to be coming in for New Year's, which is always a big deal here, mm -hmm. uh, he wants rooms for them. So he wants Hughes out. And Hughes doesn't want to leave. Hughes has become very comfortable at the Desert Inn. You know, there had been discussions with him and his uh, right-hand man, Bob Mayhew, about moving into a house in Las Vegas. Uh, but I don't think Hughes was ever very serious about that. By this time of his life, he was pretty well accustomed to living in hotels. So it, it gets to reaches a point in December where Mo Dalitz is about ready to send the sheriff in to physically evict Howard Hughes from the DI. And uh, Bob Mayhew, uh, that's the right-hand man of Hughes, he makes a call, the pivotal call, to try to avoid this conflict. He calls Jimmy Hoffa. 
Jimmy Hoffa, the uh, Teamsters Union boss, right, and asked him to intercede and allow Hughes, you know, and to talk down Modelitz from kicking Hughes out. So Jimmy Hoffa does that. He he uh, makes that call. Modelitz uh, relents and he's going to let Hughes stay. But it's right around this time that Hughes uh, comes up with the idea. Well, if they're going to kick me out of here, why don't I just buy the place and then I can stay? <laughs> and so. Hughes initiate through Mayhew, <clears throat> excuse me, through Mayhew, Hughes initiates um, uh, proceedings to purchase the Desert Inn, and by March of 1967, it was his. Jeez, <laughs> <laughs> that that's amazing. The, I mean, imagine I can't imagine just having that much money. You know what? I don't want to leave, so screw it. I'm just going to buy this place. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. He stayed there in that suite the rest of the time he was in Las Vegas, about four years total. And so, of course, the Desert Inn didn't do that well while he owned it, in part because he had occupied all the good rooms. But right. um, he did own it. And he, he once he bought the Desert Inn, he, and when he came to Las Vegas, he had no intention of buying casinos. Uh, but when, once he bought the Desert Inn, it, he decided that these were toys that he would really like to assemble. So he instructed Bob Mayhew to buy more casinos. And they ended up buying the, the Sands and the uh, Frontier and the Silver Slipper and the Castaways and the Landmark. They also bought, bought Harold's Club uh, up in Reno. Now, there's a story that I've heard about him, the reason behind his purchase of the Silver Slipper the story that I had read was that he bought it because he didn't like where the sign was. The, the blinking light of the sign kept him awake. Was that true? So that I don't believe is true. <laughs> that story has been, that story has traveled far and wide though. So the silver slipper had a very interesting sign. It was a slipper. Literally it was a sign in the shape of a slipper and it rotated and there were lights on it and it annoyed a lot of people, uh, but there's no evidence that it annoyed Howard Hughes. And one of the reasons for that was that he, all of his windows of his suite were all uh, covered. They were covered. Uh, he blacked out the room. Gotcha. So the likelihood that a light was bothering him is unlikely. Uh, what did in fact happen is Mayhew was looking for hotels to buy and the silver slipper was available. <laughs> that's, that's kind of how that worked. Uh, the, uh, you know, not every hotel on the strip was available, uh, for Hughes to buy, but the ones that were, he, he went after them. Now I want to talk about Bob Mayhew just briefly here as well, because part of the deal was, I mean, obviously to order it, to own a casino, you have to have a gaming license. Yes. Hughes never left his, his room. There were people that worked for him that never saw him or actually talked to him. How did he manage to get these gaming licenses? Was it was it Bob Mayhew doing it for him, doing it in his name? How did that manage to work? Yes, it's a it's a great story because uh, you know a gaming license in Nevada is a privileged license, so not everybody can have a gaming license. You have to go through a great deal of a great background check. They want to find out, especially today. They want to find out you know, about your criminal past or if there's anything fishy going on. What's more, part of the longstanding policy has been that if you're going to request a gaming license, you have to appear in person uh, before the Gaming Control Board and the Nevada Gaming Commission. 
and they want to see you. They want to see that you're a genuine person and that they want to be able to question you. And, and this has been the practice for, you know, before and after Howard Hughes, you know, and it doesn't matter how big of a character you are, whether you're Steve Wynn or Sheldon Adelson or Kirk Kikorian, you had to go before the gaming control board. Well, Hughes didn't want to do that. Hughes, of course, was very reclusive by this time. He was, his health was, was bad. Uh, he wasn't uh, keeping up his appearances uh, very well. And he refused to go before the gaming control board. Well, at the time, it was a bit of a, a crisis because Nevada really wanted Howard Hughes to invest in Las Vegas and in Nevada. They really thought this was going to be a big deal for the state, which it was. And the governor at the time was Paul Axalt. And Paul Axalt decided that Bob Mayhew, the right-hand man for Hughes, could act in, in Hughes's stead, that he could appear before the Gaming Control Board as if he were Howard Hughes. And it was an exception that was granted by the governor only for Hughes. And I think the only time that's ever been done in Nevada. And something else, too, that, that kind of comes up with this, with Howard Hughes buying up all of these casinos and and properties in Las Vegas, in a way, he was kind of responsible for pushing the mob out of Las Vegas as well, wasn't he? You know, that's I, he did. And, and that's an argument that I make that not every Hughes biographer makes, but I feel strongly about it because I've looked at each of these transactions that Hughes made, uh, the, the purchases that he made on the strip. And in each case, he was, the mob was involved. In other words, the mob had been involved with that casino. And when Hughes bought it, they were no longer in an ownership position at that casino. And so this was him nudging the mob out of the strip uh, resorts. Now, of course, the mob continued to be involved in other resorts on the strip and up into the eighties. But, you know, Hughes. so this was the first thing Hughes did is he physically bought these, these uh, casinos away from the mob. But, there was a more, there was a bigger uh, impact of his arrival, and that was he opened the door for mainstream American companies to um, consider investing in Las Vegas. I mean, before that, one of the reasons the mob had such an influence here is because you know mainstream companies would not invest in Las Vegas. They casinos would be bad for their image. It would be. Like you know, invest, you know, it would be almost like a criminal thing in their mind. Keep in mind, at the time, forty-nine other states gambling was illegal. At that point, mm-hmm. that is completely reversed now, and gambling is legal in one shape or form uh, in forty-eight of our states. But at the time, you know, gambling was still a sin, right? You didn't talk about it if you did it. And and so what Hughes did is said, "Here I am. I'm a well-known, well-respected, mainstream American entrepreneur." And I'm investing in casinos. If it's okay for Howard Hughes, maybe it's okay for other mainstream companies to get involved. And and so I believe he opened that door. And what you saw very quickly in the 1970s is another a number of other uh, hotel chains. You know, the Hilton chain um, came in and invested here. Ramada invested here, and other hotel companies as well as other mainstream companies. Uh, decided that Las Vegas was a, was a smart investment. So he was nudged the mob out in that way as well, because these, these other companies had a lot more money than the mob did, and they had a lot less scrutiny, uh, and they were able to make uh, uh, greater investments 
and and um, get more done here to grow Las Vegas. And it wasn't just casinos and hotels that that Hughes invested in in Las Vegas as well. I mean, he he bought land, he bought real estate, he bought a TV station. He he did a lot of investing into into Las Vegas and the surrounding areas. He definitely did. He um, he bought an airport. Uh, he bought um, uh, mining claims all over the state. Uh, he had an idea that he would buy old mining claims and then kind of find a technology to uh, go back and, and mine additional gold and silver out of those mines. He was a little ahead of his time because that actually is being done today, what they call microscopic gold, right? So there's we have a, 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 a very uh, uh, big mining industry in Nevada today doing exactly what Hughes wanted to do in the late 60s, but he didn't have the technology. Anyway, he, uh, he bought mining claims, he bought an airport, he bought land, um, and he bought a TV station, uh, Channel 8, the CBS affiliate here. And there's an amazing story associated with that. Uh, Hughes wanted to control the movies that were played in the late night period on that TV station. <laughs> he, uh, he was a guy who often would have long bouts of insomnia and sort of echoing back to that time when he was watching movies at Goldwyn Studio in, in L.A., um, he, at night he would sit there and watch the late-night movies from you know midnight to 5 a.m. or whatever it was. But they weren't playing the movies that he wanted them to play. <laughs> so in order for him to be able to control what movies were played, he had to own the station. So he ended up buying the station from a man named Hank Greenspun, who was the, a local uh, newspaper publisher who also owned the TV station. Uh, Hughes bought the station from him, and then every day Hughes would receive a list from the station of the available movies for that night's uh, late-night movie session. And Hughes then would go through the list, and he would mark the ones he wanted to show. Sometimes he wouldn't like anything on the list, and he would demand another list. <laughs> um, there, there was one infamous occasion where uh, one night Hughes – uh, was watching the late night movies and he fell asleep during one of the movies. And when he woke up, the movie was over. So he had missed it. So he called the station and he demanded that they replay that movie. <laughs> um, so imagine, imagine you're a regular person in Las Vegas and maybe you work the swing shift. So you're up at night and you know, this movie that you just watched, you know, it's on again. It's like they're showing it again. What in the world would they do that for? Well, it was because behind the scenes, Howard Hughes had demanded that they do that. Wow. So he, he always took, he always took uh, great liberties with the companies he owned. I mean, he could do whatever he wanted. He was the owner. Un unbelievable. Um, and of course, too, his his intelligence and his knowledge and his brilliance, he took a lot of that and um, – made some major contributions to uh, the academic and the educational system in the state of Nevada as well, didn't he? Well, he, he, he made, yes. Uh, he, his biggest contribution, I think, from, a, from an academic standpoint in Nevada was University of Nevada Medical School, and uh, really based in Reno, but also with uh, uh, down here. And uh, we didn't have a medical school uh, before Hughes came. And as part of him building um, – sort of his PR effort in Nevada, he agreed to uh, donate uh, a large sum of money 
uh, hundreds of thousands uh, to build a medical school in Nevada. We didn't have one at all. And uh, today, the University, University of Nevada School of Medicine is, is a great medical school. And uh, we have now a new medical school going in in Las Vegas, you know, separate but related. And, you know, it was really Hughes who got that going. Another thing that he did was he was the first to invest in our community college system here. And that started in Elko, Nevada, which is in far northeastern Nevada. They were having, they had a community college out there that was struggling financially. And again, as kind of a, a goodwill gesture, Hughes agreed to pump some money into that community college. Well, that community college ended up growing into the community college system that we have throughout the state today with, you know, probably 100,000 students or more going to all these different schools. So Hughes was very important to Nevada in that way. He was not a, a tremendous philanthropist here, but he did do uh, those two things, which are very important. So let's talk a little bit about Hughes leaving Las Vegas. Um, what were the the circumstances surrounding his decision uh, to to leave the city of Las Vegas? And, and did he sneak away in as secret of a way as he arrived? Did people know he was leaving? Um, how did that all, all sort of go down? Hughes left Las Vegas right around Thanksgiving of 1970. And the, the reason for him leaving, I don't think he wanted to leave, but he was, he had had a, um, a falling out with Bob Mayhew, his right-hand man. And there's a, it's a long story, but the, the, the short version is that Mayhew's uh, colleagues, his, the other executives within the Hughes empire were very jealous of Mayhew and what his, and his stature within, the, within Hughes's world. And there was um, some palace intrigue in which the, some of the other executives, a man named uh, Bill Gay, uh, another man named Chester Davis, who was a lawyer, for Hughes, um, really conspired against Mayhew to make him look bad in Hughes's eyes. And when this happened, Hughes was very concerned about Mayhew. Like if they're going to fire Mayhew, he's very concerned that Mayhew is going to uh, come back hard at Hughes. And so Hughes, the, the sort of decision was made, I need to get out of town. I need to get uh, you know, that Mayhew could come back at him, you know, with lawsuits and that he might be forced to testify in court. He didn't want that. Um, he wanted to get as far away as he could from the situation. So in um, November of uh, 1970, Hughes secretly uh, gets on an airplane at Nellis Air Force Base uh, to the northeast of Las Vegas and takes off and ultimately leaves the country, goes to the Bahamas. And Nobody knows he's gone at first. It's just as mysterious as when he came. But a few days after he left, he started the, the news started filtering out into the local press that Hughes had had left the, left the city. And at the time, Mayhew thought uh, suspected that Hughes had been kidnapped. Remember, at this time, Mayhew is suddenly on the outs and he doesn't know why. He's trying to figure out what's going on, and he's concerned about these other executives and what they might have done. And he accuses the war, you know, accuses these guys of kidnapping Hughes and and taking him away, and he's demanding, you know, that the government look into it and you know uh, CIA and everybody else. Well, I don't think Hughes was kidnapped, uh, not in the not in the classic sense of the term, anyway. Uh, he was manipulated into leaving, 
but he wasn't kidnapped. And um, so that's how he left. It, it left it under a cloud, and it, it really hurt Mayhew. A lot of legal uh, proceedings followed that, and uh, Mayhew, you know, on one hand came out uh, on the on the right side there. He won the legal battle, but uh, on the other hand, his reputation in town was shot, and he just never quite recovered from that the way you would hope. I mean, he was the biggest business executive in Nevada, you know, for four years, and then suddenly he's he's a nobody. And so, was the Bahamas basically where? Howard Hughes finished out the rest of his life. Is that where he, he ended up passing away or is there more to the story? Actually? No, uh, he, he was traveled around a bit. Um, he was, it was sort of unusual, but he was in the Bahamas. He was in Nicaragua. Um, he was in London. He lived in London for a while. And at that time it was a real bright spot for him. You know, his health had been deteriorating and, uh, you know, things were not going well. His addictions were really getting the best of him. But he had a, a, a lighter moment in London where things, where people were, who were, were observing him felt like, hey, here's a guy who might be pulling out of this uh, uh, a little bit. And he actually flew uh, an airplane a couple of times when he was in London. It was all set up uh, with another pilot. And the elderly Hughes gets into the other pilot seat. And they flew around Europe uh, a couple of times. Unfortunately, after, not long after those flights, uh, he was had a fall and he broke his hip. And uh, from that point on, he never uh, never stood up again. He was in bed uh, the rest of his life. Yeah, but he he ended up traveling um, from London uh, back to Central uh, America and then to ultimately to Acapulco, Mexico. And so then was it in Acapulco where he, he passed away or again, in typical Howard Hughes fashion, is there more to this story? And, and I guess the other question, uh, how old was Howard Hughes when he did pass away? Uh, you know, he was 70 years old. Uh, but what's interesting is, uh, he did not die in Acapulco, but he, he was more or less in a coma. Uh, his health had deteriorated so badly. His doctors had, had done such a poor job of, of doing their job. You know, they just were not taking good care of him. And uh, he was deteriorating at a rapid rate, finally to the extent where they were so concerned that he was going to die that a plane, they found a plane, they got him onto a plane there in Acapulco, and they raced toward Houston. The idea was to go to the Houston uh, hospital in Houston and then hopefully uh, bring him back to health. Well, about three quarters of the way into the flight, Hughes expired. And so they ended up bringing a corpse uh, back into the United States. But um, unfortunately for Hughes, that last year, last year and a half, were, were a time where he was not really uh, spending much time conversing with people. He was in a very bad state. And the aides were not, you know, blowing the whistle on this. Uh, the executives were taking advantage uh, in his companies of his uh, not being involved. And it's all very ugly business. And so when he passed away after all of these years and all of these investments and, and all of this work that he had done and, and then all of this traveling that he had done, what was his net worth believed to be at the time of his death? The, that is a subject that has never been fully, that number has never been fully agreed upon. Um, 
But, you know, he was, uh, by all intents and purposes, a billionaire with the companies that he had owned. Uh, I think he was richer, you know, five to ten years before he died than when he did die because he had he had passed on. You know, Hughes Tool Company was no longer under his control at that point, um, which was always the basis for everything with him. Uh, but so so Hughes was, was the bigger issue was like we know the guy was super rich, whether it's, you know, 500 million or one point five billion or three billion. Everybody wanted this money and there was no will uh, that could be found that was a legitimate will. And this is, there's a whole, you know, separate book to be written about that. But, <laughs> you know, everybody's looking for a will and nobody's finding a legitimate will because Hughes never signed one. Uh, he never completed the process. He had started the process. He did a will as early as when he was in his 20s. Uh, and then he had other attempts at putting together a will, but he never wrapped up the process. And so when he died, um, ultimately the judge had to decide that um, his heirs would be uh, his family members. And then there was a battle about who is a family member and who isn't. Ultimately, the judge decided that there were 22 legitimate heirs to Howard Hughes. And these individuals were, they were people who had never met him in his whole life. There were people who uh, had not talked to him in, in decades. And um, uh, the executor of the will, uh, executor of the estate, I should say, uh, was a cousin of his named Will Lummis. And what's interesting about Will Lummis is he was a really good stand-up guy. And, but he, he looked a lot like his cousin. He looked a lot like Howard. And he acted like Howard to a large extent. But they had only met one time. Uh, when when Will Lummis was a kid and he was, was was a young adult, and they'd never talked since. Well, Will Lummis ended up taking over the estate, and he um, they sold a lot of stuff uh, that Hughes had. He had airplanes stashed all over the country. <laughs> he had property stat. You know, he owned all over the country. He had the casinos on the Las Vegas Strip, which they sold. Uh, the TV station they sold, uh, etc. They ended up keeping one very important piece of property, and that was a 25,000-acre uh, piece of property on the west side of Las Vegas. And uh, that became the, one of the major legacies of Hughes's involvement with Las Vegas. And so then is that area now uh, what's known as uh, the suburb or, or the, the city of, uh, of Summerlin? Yes. Uh, so the Summerlin, uh, the, the heirs to, um, to Hughes uh, with Will Lummis at the lead decided that they would keep this piece of property and that they would develop it. Las Vegas was then growing and had a, a huge potential, growth potential, um, not only for people to come to casinos, but to actually live here. And with 25,000 acres and a, a nice area of the valley here, they decided that this would become a master plan community to rival any of the biggest and best ones in the country. And that proved to be true. The, the amazing thing about Summerlin is that it's still not finished. They're still building houses out in Summerlin. I think they still probably have about five more years of development before it's finally done. So, you know, I have many, I don't happen to live in Summerlin, but I, a lot of people I know do live there. It's a wonderful uh, community schools and 
and churches and uh, businesses and uh, manufacturing and, and baseball field and, you know, like a minor league baseball field, uh, hockey uh, practice arena, all kinds of great stuff uh, in Summerlin. And it's really become one of the centerpieces of Las Vegas. And I mean, Summerlin really isn't the only the only place that that carries um, Howard Hughes' legacy in Las Vegas. I mean, you really you can't go anywhere in the city without seeing something. It seems like with with the Hughes name on it. Yeah, you know, there there he he also uh, his heirs donated uh, money to UNLV, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, to their engineering department. So if you go to the engineering department, you'll see his name at Howard Hughes Engineering uh, uh, School. Uh, he also um, built a number of business parks here uh, and also a very like a, like a high-end uh, business park, which is called Hughes Center, um, just off the strip. And he used to own an airport here, uh, North, what's now called North Las Vegas Airport. It was, uh, it's now owned by the, the county, but at the time Hughes had it. Uh, so people remember that um, he, he, a lot of street names in, in Summerlin are referred to parts of his life, people in his life, uh, aspects of his life, which is kind of fun. And uh, even the, the Summerlin Library, the community library there, has one of the most extensive exhibits of about Hughes's life. It's mostly about his aviation career. It's a wonderful exhibit. And that was brought, you know, that was a, a partnership between the library and and the Hughes Corporation. I should note that the, the Howard Hughes Corporation uh, is still here, uh, building Summerlin and involved in some other, and other activities here too. Uh, it's it's the, the ownership of that is not tied to the heirs anymore, but they've retained the name Howard Hughes, I think because it, it does well for them. If, uh, if people want to take a really, really deep dive into the world of Howard Hughes, you have a book available um, on Amazon, and you actually just uh, released a, a new version of the book. Correct? That is correct. Uh, the new one is the one I rec- I mean, I like the old, the original uh, edition, but the new edition is is updated substantially, and uh, it's longer, more material, and it's called Howard Hughes: Power, Paranoia, and Palace Intrigue, and it's published by University of Nevada Press. Very proud of it. It uh, the original edition came out in 2008, and what's funny about that is as soon as that book came out, people came out of the woodwork to tell me more stories about Howard Hughes, and they they wanted to uh, relate uh, uh, new angles that I had not pursued in the first edition. So I was very lucky to be able to uh, to do another edition. It's longer and it's it's updated. Uh, it's, uh, a couple of mistakes are fixed. I uh, really, uh, really like this new edition. So what it does is it, it covers all, almost every aspect of Hughes's life. Uh, and it's not just Las Vegas, although that's a big part of it, but everything else as well. And the Mob Museum in downtown Las Vegas, of which you are the vice president of exhibits and programs, has uh, quite an extensive Howard Hughes collection as well. Yes, we recently redid the, the our Howard Hughes exhibit. Uh, something that I've been wanting to do for a long time. And, and so that's actually very new for people who haven't been to the museum recently. When they come again, they'll see a, a brand new Hughes exhibit. Excellent. Jeff, if people want to find the, uh, the mom museum online, you guys, of course, you're on, uh, on social media and, uh, and online, where can people find you? 
Yes, our, our website is themobmuseum.org. You've got to have the T-H-E in there, themobmuseum.org. And uh, we have a lot of great material on the website, but also a place where you can buy tickets once we, re- we reopen. Um, and then we're on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram and uh, Facebook. And uh, so you, we're not hard to find. And a lot of the social media content that we, that we put out is, is very informative, very educational. So if anybody wants to hook up with uh, any of those feeds, I think you'd find it entertaining. Excellent. Well, Jeff, thank you again for uh, for taking the time to jump on today and chat about uh, about Howard Hughes and and a very a very very cool character in the history of Las Vegas. Well, I appreciate you taking the time with me. I, I love talking about this. Once again, if you want to learn more about Howard Hughes and his time in Las Vegas, Jeff Schumacher's book, Howard Hughes, Power, Paranoia, and Palace Intrigue, is available from your favorite bookseller right now. I'll put a link in the show notes on the website. Also, don't forget about one of my all-time favorite Vegas attractions, the Mob Museum. For details and virtual tours, head to their website at themobmuseum.org. that wraps up another episode of the podcast if you've got feedback on this episode of the show or any other episode for that matter or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast please feel free to reach out to me via facebook twitter or instagram at jeff does vegas you can also drop me an email directly at jeff at jeff In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit jeffdoesvegas.com for past episodes, show notes, and a link to the official Jeff Does Vegas YouTube channel. My name is Jeff, and this has been episode number 62 of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast.